You see from the handout that we're looking at Colossians 4, 2 to 6 this afternoon. I'm going to read from the New American Standard, though you'll notice I printed King James Version in the handout. I'll comment in a minute upon that. But let's uh, pay our attention to the Apostles' inspired word here. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. In focusing on these five verses today, I am suggesting that we are examining a rhetorical unit or a rhetorical subunit of this epistle. That is to say, I am suggesting that Paul's remarks in these five verses contain a rhetorical integrity which distinguishes them from other rhetorical units of this letter. Now, having said this, I'm going to ask you if you see any reason to justify what I am suggesting. In other words, is there anything about the position of this section which would indicate to you that my suggestion that it is an integral rhetorical unit is accurate or defensible? And now the burden of proof is upon you before it's upon me. Now, I gave you a clue in that last statement. Is there anything about the position of this section which would justify my conclusion that it is a distinct or a unique or an integral rhetorical unit of the epistle? Okay, so Ben is observing that it has a position which kind of stands out. It's, uh, so we say, peculiar to itself. And that's a, that's a perfect observation. But does it have any relationship to what precedes it? What precedes it? What unit, what rhetorical unit precedes these verses? Rules for Christian households. Yes, the house or the house codes, which go from 318 to 41, and of course our argument when we were discussing those, <clears throat> that uh, not 318, yes, 318 to 41, <clears throat> our discussion that 41 actually ought to be 326. It ought to have been cut off <clears throat> with the previous unit. All right, so this unit 
stands at the end of the house codes unit. It is a integral unit in itself, which seems to provide a conclusion to what would be the main body of the epistle. Now, what about what follows? What's its relationship to what follows? It comes at the end of what precedes. It stands at the beginning of what follows. And what does follow? Well, a number of personal and biographical reflections which conclude the epistle in its entirety. Now, as you scan verses 7 to 18, beginning with the name Tychicus and going to the end, Paul, in verse 18, verses 7 to 18 have 12 names of individuals, including the apostle himself, names which contain biographical information on the Pauline network. Now, we're going to look at that in detail uh, in our next uh, several uh, <clears throat> studies, but I just want to note that what we're reading today has a unique position. So it's not incidental to the Apostle's argument or the rhetorical flow of what he's doing. It has a place because he's put it here for a particular reason. All right, the end of the body of the epistle and the beginning of the conclusion or personal network that is part of the, the finality of the epistle as a whole. From its position then, verses 2 to 6 form a bridge section, a rhetorical bridge, a bridge unit which spans the tradition from relational roles in the households to relational individuals, Tychicus, Onesimus, etc., to Paul himself, or persons down to verse 18. I am suggesting, therefore, that chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, is a bridge unit which sandwiches 3.18 to 4.1 with 4.7 to 18. It holds them together because it is a transitional bridge spanning the relationship between household individuals and the relationships between Paul and his companions, Paul and his network. Outer layers, including the first body of the letter and second, the whole of the letter, sandwiched together by five transitional verses. Now, you may wonder why I'm making a big deal about this rhetorical development in the Apostle's thinking. For the sake of justifying why he's done it. For there are many studies on this letter that do not know what to do with these five verses. They argue that it is an insert, perhaps from a later editor, who did not understand the flow of the Apostle's argument and therefore stuck it in for the sake of piety. I think that's boneheaded and dead wrong. So I am trying to justify the role of this unit in terms of its position first 
It does have a position in terms of spanning the transition between the end of the doctrinal section of the epistle and the beginning of what we might call his personal biographical reflections on his own personal network, his network of friends and colleagues in the gospel. That doesn't make me right about my suggestion, but at least gives the apostle a plausible reason for including these five verses in the epistle as a whole. Now, we want to consider Paul's purpose a little further and as he has placed this bridge unit or sandwich transition here. But before we do that, let's note some important features of these five verses. I want you to scan the passage once again. We've read it and you've seen it as I've read it. I invite you to scan the passage again, where the King James Version may be more helpful than your modern translations, which is one of the reasons I put it into your handout. And as you scan the passage, I'm asking you to look for some patterns. Now, keep in mind that when we look for patterns in biblical rhetoric or biblical literature, whether it's Old or New Testament rhetoric or literary structure, when we look for patterns, one basic pattern in the Semitic mind is always what? Fill in the blank. March? Symmetry? Symmetry? Mm, little? Go on? Parallelism? Anything else? Any other word? Not here, but that's good to observe. Semitic mind likes March. I think you said it. I could. Repetition. I think. I said repetition. Repetition is right. Okay. The Semitic mind likes duplication, repetition, recursive use of language. All right. Now, as you, this this is a Semitic mind, isn't it? Apostle Paul is a Semitic mind. So, let's scan these five verses. What do you see? And as I said, it might be easier to see it in the King James. Do you see any duplication, any repetition, any recursion in the use of language, vocabulary, or imagery in this unit? What verse, Bob? Uh, verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 and 3, we have prayer. And so I've put that in your outline. You can fill in the, the, the words there. Prayer and praying, it is the same Greek root. But it is a duplicate use of the same Greek root. root. Here is a Semitic mind at work. It's the Apostle Paul's Jewish mind at work. Anything else? Speak and speak. Speak and speak. Where do you see those, Loretta? Uh, okay. Three and four. Three and four. And uh, the word for speech is a little bit different in six, so we'll take three and four as the parallel same Greek word. Anything else that jumps out at you in terms of repetition, duplication? Outside every man. Mm. That's a good observation, but the words aren't the same. 
They are parallel, and we'll get to that later on. Alright, this is a little harder to see because not even the King James uh, translates this the same way, nor does the New American Standard. It's the prepositional phrase in verse 5 and 6. In verse 5 in the King James, in wisdom, with wisdom in the New American Standard. And in verse 6, with grace in the King James and in the New American Standard, only it is in the Greek the very same preposition. It is the preposition en, which means in or with. We've used it routinely to focus on en Christo, Paul's doctrine of being united or in Christ, joined to Christ in terms of his life, death, and resurrection. Here, it can be translated with or in and it is parallel in wisdom, verse 5, or with wisdom, in grace or graciousness, or with grace and graciousness in verse 6. Again, same Greek preposition uh, being used to duplicate the, the apostle's thought. Now, there's one more in verses 4 and 6. And once again, it's a little easier to see this in the King James than it is in the uh, newer translations because they are not uh, con- they are not as consistent as the King James is at this point. What do you see in verse four and six, which is duplicated in the King James text? The word "ought." Very good. Yes, it's a very strong Greek verb. It has the sense of a kind of impelling duty or compelling duty, I should say. The New American Standard translates it should in verse 6, even though it does translate it ought in verse 4. All right, so we're noticing at least four instances so far, so far of recursive use of language, repetition or duplication of vocabulary. This is certainly a, a well-constructed section of this epistle, and it is, a, it is parallel uh, to use Marge's word, is parallel to what we've learned about the apostles' use of language throughout this epistle. Here is a, ne- a next-to-the-last instant of it. Well, I said next-to-the-last, <clears throat> because there is another parallelism here, but it is a grammatical observation. It's the Greek sign of a purpose clause, <clears throat> and I placed it In your handout, I've given you the Greek characters and a transliteration into English. It's the so-called hina clause in Greek, which means for the purpose of, or in order that, or so that. It's variously translated. But it always has the, the point being for the purpose that something should follow. So this this word is duplicated in verse 3. It's simply translated that in the King James and the New American Standard. So we would understand the phrase, for the purpose that or in order that a door might be opened to me. And then that same word, hina, that purpose clause particle is used once again in verse 4 at the very beginning of that verse when the New American Standard translates it uh, that, as does the King James, but it could be translated literally in order that, 
that I may, that I've been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in this, if this door is open to me in the way I ought to speak. So when it's used both in verse three and in verse four, it has the stronger force of a full literal translation in order that or for the purpose that. Five instances in our survey of the symmetrical or duplicate or recursive vocabulary and grammar of this unit. And it underscores the integrity of the unit in its own right. Paul has carefully constructed a transitional bridge that spans the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of the end of chapter 4. All right, now, place your finger here on Colossians 4, and let's turn back for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 6. And we've got to uh, put our attention on Ephesians chapter 6. At verse 18, looking at 18, 19, and 20. And I'll give you a moment just to scan those or read those verses quietly to yourself. And as you read them, I'm wondering if you notice anything. Same parallel with prayer, repeating, and also speaking. Good. Any other parallels? He uses a very powerful word in verse 19. Flip your finger back to Colossians 4.3 and compare Ephesians 6.19 to Colossians 4.3. Mm, could be interesting. His open mouth. The mystery, of the mystery, yes, the mystery of the gospel. He duplicates the word mystery. <clears throat> All right, so the mystery of Christ here in four three is mystery of the gospel in Ephesians six nineteen. Here in verse four. Colossians 4, the phrase is in the way I ought to speak. There, in Ephesians 6.20, he uses the words, as I ought to speak. They're almost exactly alike in Greek. We observe then the symmetry or similarity of language at the close of two of Paul's letters. Two of Paul's letters close with virtual duplicate language in these instances. Now, what kind of epistle is Colossians? That is, where was it written? Ben, your head went up. It is a prison epistle. Yes, he's even in our Colossians passage today, he's even acknowledged his imprisonment. So this is a prison epistle. And what kind of epistle is Ephesians? Say that one's not so easy to answer because you haven't been studying 
Ephesians that way. Well, let's take go, go ahead. He's in chains, it says in verse 20. It, very good. You, spot, you, you spotted the clue in the very section that we were looking at. My pages aren't turning very well here to Ephesians. But he also declares that in chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord. He's using prisoner in an ambivalent fashion there in order to draw his imprisonment into his union with Christ. All right, so at the end of two of his prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, Paul emphasizes his proclamation of the mystery of the gospel of Christ and how he ought to or is obliged to or is under divine mandate to speak forth that mystery, utter it, preach it, declare it. He's under obligation. He's under necessity. I ought to proclaim this mystery. All right, now we want to hold that point in mind as we continue to explore the question of why Paul has written this transitional and rhetorical bridge unit in Colossians 4. All right, going back then to our text for this afternoon. Some scholars have noted a mirror reflection of prayer in this letter. A mirror reflection in chapter 1. And as you turn back to chapter 1, you will notice verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In verse 3 of chapter 4, we have a mirror of prayer, only this time, what's the reflection? Chapter 1, the apostle is praying for the Colossian Christians. In chapter 4, verse 3, he is asking He's asking for a mirror reflection. He's asking for the Colossian Christians to pray for him. Mirror reciprocity. He declares that he is in frequent prayer for them, and he's asking them to mirror that by praying in response for him. The mirror reflection then is present from the beginning of the epistle, and we have seen that borne out also in terms of the mirror reflection of union with Christ. 
Paul's doctrine of being in Christ, united to him, joined to his very life, death, and resurrection. And that reciprocally mirrored in the believing Colossians' union with Christ. So there is a reflexive pattern, not only between union with Christ, Paul with Christ and the Christian and Colossae with Christ, but Christ with them, Christ with him. It's a mutual, reflective, mirror relationship. All right, well, that relationship is described by this term mystery of Christ in verse 3, which was also used in Ephesians 6. But here we want to review or we want to remind ourselves of what that word mystery contains, what it suggests. First of all, what mystery is there? What is this mystery? Well, Paul tells us in this letter. So let's review by turning back for a minute to verse 26 of chapter 1. It is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages. And then in the very next verse, verse 27 of chapter 1, he explains what has been hidden from past generations. And what is it? Word become flesh. Word become flesh? Well, it's not really what he says there, although it's involved. Verse 27. Christ in you. Christ in who? Yes, and what kind of people are they? Gentiles. They are the Gentiles. The Gentile, the mystery is that the Gentiles have now received the promise of the mystery of God. That is, salvation to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> the riches and glory of the grace of Christ lavished upon the Gentiles as well as the Jews but here, speaking to a Gentile audience, the Colossians were, he's underscoring the fact that they are the beneficiaries of the unfolding solution to the mystery which has been hidden from past generations. Uncircumcised as well as circumcised are beneficiaries of this mystery. Grace lavished on women as well as men. Grace and mercy lavished upon slaves as well as free men. Grace and mercy poured out upon barbarians and Scythians as well as Roman cultured or civilized Greco-Roman folks. This is a stupendous <clears throat> unfolding or declaration of the solution to the mystery of why the gospel was only given to the Jews prior to the apostolic mission prior to the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Here is the answer to the mystery. It had been hidden from them, but now it has been disclosed and fully revealed. So that in the third use of the word mystery in this epistle to the Colossians, <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 2, the true knowledge of God is labeled 
the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Lord Jesus. Returning then to chapter 1, verse 27, a phrase which Ben emphasized, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Gentiles. That's the hope of your glory, a hope that you had never had heretofore, now explosively declared to you, specifically declared to you by the gospel which I have preached, the gospel which I have written to you, though I never preached to you in person. All right, so four times in this epistle. Four times in this epistle, Paul declares the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the knowledge, of of the true knowledge of God in Christ. The central feature then of Paul's letter to the Colossians is Christ Jesus, the Savior. The central feature of this epistle is not how to get along with your neighbor, per se. It is not what you're going to do in order to cope with your trials and tribulations, per se. The central feature of this epistle is the mystery of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That is the treasure that belongs to those who are united to him, those who are in him, hidden from them, the Colossian Gentiles until now, even now as it had been hidden from Paul himself in his sinful unbelief before the Damascus Road. Yes, this mystery was hidden from that Jewish Pharisee before he was put down on his face on the road to Damascus, stopped in his tracks, turned about by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. His life was arrested in its death and made alive in Christ's resurrection life on that Damascus road. So he draws the Colossian Christians whom he's never seen in the flesh flesh, into the story of that mystery, which is now made clear, now made manifest, now wonderfully recorded and disclosed, that Christ saves sin-blinded Jewish Pharisees like himself, translating them from eternal death to eternal resurrection life in Christ, even as he saves sin-blinded Gentile Colossians like themselves, translating them from eternal death to eternal resurrection life in Christ. The mystery was was resolved in Paul's own conversion, his own regeneration, his own death to himself and resurrection to the risen Christ who encountered him on the Damascus Road. It was being drawn into the union of relationship with that risen, risen Jesus that he died and he rose again. And he is saying to the Colossians, as we've seen a number of times in this letter, you too have died together with him. You were crucified with him. You've been made alive with him in his resurrection. This is your heritage. This is your legacy. This is your story. This belongs to you. Your life hidden with God in Christ? Yes, dead and raised, even as he was dead and raised. So the mystery even goes beyond the spiritual union and attachment to the actual biographical accomplishment, the historical accomplishment of that fact. Because if Christ did not die, 
if Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no possibility that we could enter into the mystery because it's a historical myth. It has no concrete reality. Your life would be empty even if you believed it as an abstraction. But because it's historical fact, it is absolutely essential to your realization of that union. You cannot have that sweet, gracious, merciful, all-empowering union with Christ unless he died in history on a cross. He rose from a tomb and left it empty in history. If it's simply symbol, as most modern theology teaches, if, if it's simply symbol, then it's not real, it's not historical fact, and it benefits you not one whit. You can't be saved by symbols. Believe me, hell is not a symbol. It is a concrete reality. So, this mystery that Paul underscores here is his way of drawing those Colossian Christians into the same mystical union that he has with Christ. He wants them to mirror his union. He has a union with Christ. He wants them to have a union with Christ. The same rich, passionate union that he enjoys with Christ, even though he's in prison, he wants them to enjoy, though they are out of prison. So in the narrative biography of Christ himself is part of the resolution of this misery, mystery. Christ has died unto sin and been raised up to life eternal, leaving sin and death behind him. And Christ's narrative mirrors their narrative, the Colossian Christian's narrative, resolving the mystery of their death and condemnation, guilt and hell, swallowed up in Christ's life and justification and forgiveness and heaven eternal. The eternal Son of heaven's eternal God the Father and the one sealed by the eternal God the Holy Spirit as he is in whom the Colossian Christians have died in his death and have been born again in his resurrection from the dead. There is the second mirror in this concluding bridge paradigm. The first mirror is that prayer invocation, that prayer relationship, but here is a glorious reciprocal mystery. Christ's story of death and resurrection in them, it becomes their story. They possess it in union with him, their story in Christ, their story joined to Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, you in Christ, the possession of that glory. The mirror, then, is twofold here. At the end of this epistle, Paul mirrors prayer for himself and his prayer for them. At the end of his epistle, Paul mirrors the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of his union with Christ, which occurred on the road to Damascus, and their union with the Christ, which occurred in the time that Epaphras preached the gospel to them. This reciprocity, this mirror reflection is personal, it is passionate, it is Christocentric. 
It is centered in the person of Christ, God's eternally begotten Son, sealed by the Spirit through the grace and mercy of God the Father to his children. This is the great mystery that belongs even to us as readers of this letter, for we are not separated from that reality even by 2,000 years. It is as imminent now as it was to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road and to the Colossians when they heard it and believed it. It is the mystery of the gospel which turns the hearts of dead sinners to living, raised from the dead sinners alive forevermore in Christ Jesus. Any questions to this point? Randy? So if it was hidden, but no longer hidden now, but it's still a mystery, still a mystery, right? No longer. It's no longer a mystery. Uh, why, what do you think is still mysterious about it? If it's not a mystery. Well, because he's got more people that he wants to declare the answer to the mystery to. He wants that open, I'm going to refer to that phrase, the open door. There there are more who do not know the answer to the mystery. So in that sense, yes, the mystery is hidden from those who haven't believed or have not heard the gospel. It's still there in that sense. But in terms of of the advance of the history of redemption, there is no mystery any longer. No, he's not not referring to that per se. He's referring to this unfolding revelation of how they, of of who has been offered this, this gift. Yes, it's true that there is mystery in God's eternal decree, but he's not using mystery here that way. has been revealed yes. now. Yes. It has been right. revealed, declared, openly shown and manifest. That the Gentiles who were not recipients of this grace before the death and resurrection of Christ are now folded in to the trunk of Israel, now folded in to the harvest of the Gentiles and the harvest of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what I mean when I say redemptive historical. It's an unfolding redemptive historical uh, aspect of, of this mystery. Any other comments or questions? Yes? Maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but you have said to me that we may never know all of the mysteries of Christ. So what are you referring to? Not, not, not this mystery. <laughs> now, you're talking about uh, exhausting the mind of God or all that is in his in his knowledge and his being, his existence. So <clears throat> we'll never exhaust the mind of God, even in glory. We'll always be in- incrementally uh, uh, learning more and more and more about God himself. It'll take us an eternity to learn all that there is to know about him. And of course, eternity never ends. <clears throat> because that's the difference between his infinite and almighty being and our finite and limited being. Even in glor- even our glorified uh, limited and finite being. We don't become God 
at glorification. He's still greater than we are. So that that's what I mean by mystery in that sense. We don't exhaust it with what Job, Job says, you know, who can understand, who can exhaust God? Yes, Randy? Yeah, you threw out that word symbol. Now, I'm going to take that, maybe not fairly, to eschatology. So you say symbol has no meaning. So when amillennialists interpret the whole book of Revelation as a symbol and it has no historical teeth, how can... How can revelations be meaningful? Well, that's a misrepresentation of the all-millennial position because you're suggesting that the all-millennial position has no historical teeth. I've never seen anybody give historical teeth. Uh, well, be patient. Uh, when I'm done with cautions, I'll show you how it happens. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I hope I'm still alive. <laughs> I, I hope I live to finish it. <laughs> Well, I let the cat out of the bag, but of course I've, I've hinted at this, and I started working on it last summer. Yes, yeah, so when we finish Colossians, we'll go on to the book of Revelation. All right, take your break, and we'll, uh, we'll look at a couple of other features of this little bridge unit. Now, back to Colossians 4. And as Loretta pointed out earlier, the word chains or imprisonment, which is in this section, verse 3, Paul's embrace and disclosure of the mystery had cost him. He had paid a price for treasuring and proclaiming the mystery. The cost was his imprisonment. Verse 3 of our passage, as we've indicated, which we may compare with verse 20 of Ephesians 6, where he mentions his chains. All right, so once again, in both Colossians and Ephesians, two of Paul's prison epistles, he explicitly mentions his chains or imprisonment for speaking forth the mystery of the gospel, the grace of Christ, at the conclusion of his letters. At the conclusion of the epistles. In two prison epistles, Paul requests prayer for his desire to speak forth the mystery of Christ's gospel in order that opportunity may be provided. Notice that phrase, the open door here in Colossians 4.3 and the open mouth of Christ's ambassador in Ephesians 6.19 and 20. That's certainly suggestive language in Ephesians 6. An opportunity provided for him to preach to the Gentile world beyond Ephesus, beyond Colossae, beyond Laodicea, beyond Rome. Paul, here in Colossians and in Ephesians, in similar language, yearns to go beyond his prison chains to be ushered through an open door as God's ecumenical ambassador for disclosing the riches of glory in Christ Jesus more and more to the Greco-Roman Gentile world. Paul's prayer for himself in Ephesians and Colossians and his invitation for the Ephesian and Colossian Christians to join him in this prayer, there's that mirror paradigm, 
Paul's prayer is that he might be set free with an open mouth and an open door to offer the wisdom of God in the mystery of Christ to the broader Mediterranean Gentile world, even as far away as Spain as Romans 15.24 indicates. Now, you understand why I am harping on this rhetorical unit and its similarity to the closing unit of rhetoric in Ephesians 6.18-20. to There is a reciprocity here which is deeper than simply the words mystery and prayer, etc. Paul is praying that he be given an open door to redeem the time, as the Greek literally reads in the King James translated, to redeem the time that remains to him for an open door of access once again beyond his third missionary journey to the Greco-Roman Gentile Mediterranean Basin. Was Paul's prayer ever answered? Did the apostle walk through an open door with his mouth openly proclaiming the riches of the mystery of Christ as an ambassador to more of the Gentile world? Was his prayer answered? And how do you know? He's already been before the emperor, the end of the book of Acts, this imprisonment, or house arrest. Didn't he do it again before some... How do you know? I can't remember where it is, but it's Art? Well, here we are 2,000 years later with his epistles in print. So, yes. True enough, but yes, we're talking about Paul's personal biography, his personal history. How do you know? You say, yes, how do you know? Because I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you see, you have to be able to demonstrate what you know. You have to have Bible and verse. You have to have chapter and verse, I should say. How do you know that he, that he got a fourth missionary journey? Oh, yeah, he didn't turn, he just got Ephesus. He said, I should turn Ephesus. And from there, he wrote his prison epistles. No. Never mind. It's the pastoral epistles that tell you. And of course, the pastoral epistles are the most hotly debated amongst the liberal theologians as to whether they are Pauline or not, and they won't grant them to Paul because they believe that he was executed during that first imprisonment. No, it is the evidence of the pastoral epistles written to Timothy and Titus, where Paul is active in Crete. In the epistle of Titus, he says, I left you in Crete. He was in Crete, and not on his third missionary journey. So he left Titus in Crete, and then in Macedonia, where he talks about Timothy, he talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy about the fact that he had been in Macedonia and in Corinth, 
He talks to Timothy again in 2 Timothy that he had been in Corinth. And in those epistles, he, he, number, he mentions a number of other Mediterranean locations. I'm simply emphasizing Crete, Macedonia, and Corinth as three of the most prominent. He was out loose. He was running free, according to the pastorals, which means that he had a fourth missionary tour, which may have taken him, according to tradition, and that passage in Romans 15, 24, may have taken him all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar and Spain. After all, he was a seafaring apostle. He wasn't afraid to get on a boat and sail. And that would have been sailing to the end of the world as far as they knew. Did I get out to the Straits of Gibraltar and enter into the land of Spain? Now, there's no proof of that. There is the aspiration of it. There's the tradition that indicates that he did make it to España, but we can't demonstrate that from the scriptures. What we can demonstrate from the scriptures is Crete, Macedonia, Corinth, and other locations from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the epistle to Titus. Wouldn't those places still be considered a Greco-Roman Wouldn't he what? Wouldn't those places still be considered within the Greco-Roman world? Yes, they would. Yes, okay, so all, all of them, even Spain. Yes. Except for Spain. Spain, Spain would have been included too. Oh, okay. Yes, because uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars spelled, spelled over, spilled over a little bit into Spain. evidence of that. No, not not beyond that. No. For instance, you think into the heart of Africa or something like that or into uh, into Asia beyond Asia Minor. No, no indication of that. Go ahead, Art. Do you think that Paul did go beyond the No, I don't think he did. This was after the two years in at mentioned at the end of Acts, right? Yes. Some sometime subsequent to that two-year house arrest period or imprisonment. When we say imprisonment, this first imprisonment, Acts 28 indicates he had a great deal of liberty. So it wasn't as if he was in a cell, but he was chained to a guard. He mentions the fact that he, he wore that chain. And so that's, that's the imprisonment that he's describing. He wasn't free, wasn't free to leave, but people were free to come and go. Uh, with him, which is one of the reasons we have a Pauline network at the end of this Colossian letter, and we'll, we'll get into that in uh, subsequent weeks. That would be the answer to his prayer. And all those people coming. Somewhat. No, somewhat. But no, he going, that's that's the answer. To his prayer. He wants an open door for himself, not just an open door for the gospel. He wants an open door for himself. He wants to go. So he goes to Crete. He goes to Macedonia. He goes to Corinth after he's been arrested and taken to Rome at the end of Acts 28. All right, so he, he probably died in the second imprisonment, being beheaded in Rome by Nero, probably. After this, after this, the, there was another imprisonment. After the pastoral epistles, after this, after the career of his fourth missionary journey in the pastoral epistles. Now, um, summarizing to this point. We have two rhetorical units and two prison epistles of Paul, Colossians 4, 2 to 6, Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, which are, if you will, prophetic bridges. Notice I've called them bridge units, 
but now I'm calling them prophetic bridges, spanning the biography of the imprisoned Paul to the biography of the emancipated Paul. These are bridges which anticipate his hope, prophesy his hope, explain his desire. He wants that open door. Paul anticipates his present bondage in union with the dying and risen Christ, opening into the realization of his out-of-prison freedom in the dying and risen Christ to declare the mystery of the grace of Christ to the Gentiles even more. Prison epistles with rhetorical yearning fulfilled in pastoral epistles with missionary journeys accomplished. That's my point here. That's one of the reasons I belabored this all afternoon. I am attempting to give a rhetorical response to the fact that the apostle did write those pastoral epistles. And they are part of his anticipation in this bridge unit here in Colossians 4 and in Ephesians 6. The similarity that is there in those two letters, which are prison epistles, is not present at the end of any of the pastoral letters. There is no there is no note that he is in prison except in Second Timothy. At the end of that letter, he is back in prison. But there is no note in First Timothy or in Titus that he is imprisoned or in chains. He is perfectly at liberty in those epistles, which means that he was set free for a yet fourth missionary journey in the course of which he wrote two epistles, to two pastoral epistles, one to Timothy, one to Titus, and then at the end of his, at the approaching end of his life in the second imprisonment because in Second Timothy he indicates he's enchained and in prison again and his death is imminent in chapter 4 verse 6. Then he is at the end of his life expectancy and the end of his missionary enterprise. All right, this is the justification then for the Pauline authorship of all of the letters that bear his name. Not just the the main doctrinal letters, but the pastoral letters, so-called Timothy and Titus. All right, so I'm suggesting that this rhetorical bridge in Colossians 4, 2-6 is a crucial narrative biographical clue to the aspiration and prayerful hopes of Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome. And I am suggesting that the absence of such a rhetorical bridge in the pastoral epistles is evidence that the longing of Paul to yet once more be free and open to preach the mystery of Christ beyond his chains in Rome at the end of his third missionary journey is testimony that his prayers of the Colossian and Ephesian Christians were answered and the prison door was opened in the providence of God to this ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ more Gentiles heard of union with the crucifixion death of Christ and union with the resurrection life of Christ after Paul was released from that first imprisonment at the end of his third missionary journey. These bridge units are actually a narrative bridge to the pastoral epistles. Paul's biography here in prison chains, Paul's biography there in liberty unchained, at least re-imprisoned, at least until he was re-imprisoned, and expecting his imminent death in Rome, as 2 Timothy 1, 8, 16 to 17, 2, 9, and 4, 6 suggests. 2 Timothy does indicate a subsequent imprisonment. It must be a second Roman imprisonment. He says he's in Rome at that time at 2 Timothy, 
the second Roman imprisonment, and in chapter 4, verse 6, as indicated before, he's expecting his imminent death. So three missionary journeys, imprisonment in Rome. Released from imprisonment in Rome, fourth missionary journey, then re-imprisoned in Rome. And died, as tradition has it, sometime between 64 and 68 A.D. at the hand of the mad emperor Nero. All right, now, we have discussed the larger or broader significance of this unit in Colossians 4. Let's consider one final mirror pattern which builds on the apostolic slash congregational mirror found in the involvement in prayer. Recall he prays for them, 1-3. He requests that the congregation reciprocally pray for him, 4-2 and 3. And what do I want you to notice? I want you to notice that word, outsiders. Conduct, yes, conduct yourselves toward outsiders. What did you say earlier about that, Randy? We were all once outsiders, so that's the Yeah, that is true, but you said something earlier that was anticipatory of what I'm going to say now. So you were being a prophet. Well, I'm just reading what's there. A prophet can't forget what he said. (laughs) (laughs) When you got amnesia like me. (laughs) Prophetic amnesia, that's interesting. All right, you had, you had suggested that there was a mirror in that word outsiders, and you're absolutely right. That's what I want to build on here for a moment. Notice that word outsiders in 5, and then the word each person in verse 6, according to the New American Standard Translation. These are actually synonyms in the Greek. They are referring to those outside the congregation or Christian community at Colossae, persons to whom the Christians of the community may have opportunity, verse 5, to speak to verse 6. Now, what am I making of this? In other words, these persons, outsiders, each person, are fellow Gentiles, non-Christians to whom the Colossian believers may have occasion to speak with in response, verse 6, to comments or questions about their Christ-centered lifestyle or their character or any other element of their Christian profession. Perhaps we may regard these verses 5 and 6 as Paul's version of Peter's famous remark in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give to everyone a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul is urging the Colossian Christians to reflect his own hope, detailed in verses 3 and 4, that he have opportunity, the open door, to present the gospel to those outside his prison cell in the wider Gentile world, I use the word sell loosely there, as the apostle desires an opportunity to share the mystery of Christ to outsiders, so he urges the Colossian Christians to take advantage of opportunities to speak to each outsider who is curious about about the gospel or person to person personally about the gospel of grace in Christ. In other words, he wants to go to outsiders He wants them to be talking to outsiders if they have the chance, if they have the opportunity, if if there is an opportunity to respond or give an answer for what they believe. The apostle draws his readers into the drama of the narrative that both of them share, the story of the mystery of Christ, which both Paul and the Colossian Christians have have when they have an opportunity to speak 
about that, these realities to those persons who are still outside the door of the grace of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. I want a door of opportunity. I pray that you will also join me in praying that that may be accomplished. And you have a door of opportunity. You have those who are outside your Christian community. That you pray that you may have an opportunity to have an open discussion with each person that may want to respond to your lifestyle or to your witness. We have therefore a carefully constructed rhetorical unit in these five verses containing duplicate or recursive vocabulary and using mirror reflection so as to draw the Colossian believers into the narrative story of the imprisoned Apostle Paul. Even as he and they both hope for opportunity to draw outsiders in the Greco-Roman world into the wonder of the mystery of Christ, a crucified and risen, glorious and gracious Savior of sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. It's a very poignant unit in this epistle. And it has all kinds of suggestiveness about it because the drama of this unit is the drama of the apostles' prayers and hopes. And he is drawing them into that very same drama as they pray and hope not only for him, but for themselves to have an opportunity for those who are outside of the door of Christ's salvation. So, brothers and sisters, may you have opportunity and an open door for those outside who may ask a reason for the hope of in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's the mystery of the gospel that you have the opportunity to offer if you have a chance to respond to questions about your lifestyle. Any comments? Andy? I don't know if this is appropriate to ask the answer right now, but I think maybe it might be. uh, What is the difference between evangelizing and proselytizing? Well, in proselytizing, you're uh, more or less forcing people or you're trying to coerce their will into your particular belief system. Evangelizing is simply being available to offer an answer for the reason that, that is in, for the reason of the hope that's in you. That is, that if there are people that are asking about your lifestyle or asking about your witness or you have an opportunity to declare your witness and people want to know what that means, that you're ready to explain it clearly and openly. That must be a gray area when the persuasiveness of matters somewhere there, I guess. Uh, where, where does persuasion become Bible thumping or something? I don't know. Well, you, you, you'd approach each situation with, with a gentle humility. You're not there to buttonhole people and to force them into the kingdom of heaven, and only the Holy Spirit can work. But you're there, you're there, there to be a vessel that God can use to bear witness to what you believe and the heart of faith that you have in Christ Jesus. Which I'm trying, trying to avoid, and I think I've done all right. By the way, I, I hope that God blesses you in that. Yes, that you won't be proselytizing anyone. We want willing believers, sweet hearts, willingly in love with Christ. All right, let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for the wonder of your inspiration to the apostle and for the wonder of his own vocabulary and rhetoric. 
And we thank you, Father, for the intimations here of what we believe is true about the pastoral epistles confirming his hope that he did indeed have an open door as Christ set him free to bear testimony to more of the Greco-Roman world in his day. So we thank you for the gospel that came to Crete and Macedonia and Corinth anew and was renewed in all those places even as he had preached it before with the exception of Crete. And we ask you, O Lord, to help us. We have opportunity. We may give a very good and gracious reason for the Christ-centered hope that is in us. We ask your blessing then upon your people, not only here, not only in this nation, but throughout the world, that even where they suffer persecution, that they may know that the great glory is Christ in them, the hope of that everlasting glory now and forevermore. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.